Welcome to Business Ninjas, brought to you by Write For Me, where you'll hear from business leaders who are out there growing their business and slaying it every day. Learn from the masters. Let's get started. Hi, and welcome to another episode of Business Ninjas. I'm here today with Adam Sandman, founder and CEO at Inflectra Corporation. Adam, how are you today? I'm good, thanks. Thanks for having me on the show today. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, it's my pleasure to have you. Appreciate you spending some time with us on Business Ninjas. Please uh, tell us a bit about yourself and about Inflectra Corporation. So, yeah, I mean, my background um, really is I started uh, professional life, at least in the United States, uh, moving here after I finished uh, university in Great Britain. I uh, got a job with a company called Sapient. They're a wealthy, well-known or were a well-known IT consulting company, uh, famous for the creating the e-business logo for IBM and the dot-com boom and the dot-com bust. Um, lived through all of that in Boston uh, and then did some other work for Sapient and various offices, ended up in the DC area where I am today. And then in 2006, uh, taking some of the, I think some of the, the, the lessons from working at Sapient and the lack of good tools on the software testing market at the time, uh, founded Inflectra in 06 uh, to build a SaaS product. While well, those days actually it was a self-installed product, now it's both. Um, that's how the, the world moves on. Uh, create a product that would help testers, quality engineers, and people who care about quality have better tools and better uh, functionality um, so that that way they could have better outcomes. Excellent. So uh, the majority of your your services, your platform is in the testing and and diagnostics? Uh, Traditionally, it was in the testing and quality space, and we've now been branching out into the project management, risk management, and the wider IT management. Because what we find is that you know quality is everyone's job, and that's one of the taglines, because if you start saying that the quality is the tester's job, then you as a company are already in trouble. You're already failing. Um, if you look at many major companies around the world, many in the news last few weeks without mentioning names, uh, you know, quality, if it gets to the point where it's a QA person's finding it, uh, it's six, you know, six steps after the fact it should have been found. And so, again, I would say we did grow out of the QA mindset and QA discipline, but we've really built a platform that tries to get everyone involved in quality and delivery and balancing speed and quality, which are the two things that everyone really wants. And it's hard to get that balance right sometimes. Makes makes plenty of sense. And what verticals are you servicing with this platform? Uh, I mean, in theory, any. But what we found is the most, I guess, the most ideal customers for us are in the segments where when failure happens, it's the most catastrophic. So healthcare, biosciences, medical devices, aerospace, automotive, um, you know, defense, mission systems, uh, also manufacturing uh, and other systems to do with like utilities and uh, you know, power, electricity, gas, that kind of thing. So anywhere when the software doesn't work correctly, um, it's not just a website going down, but it's actually someone's life is disrupted. One would hope that in, in those sectors, you don't have to convince people that quality is the first uh, order of business in their data. Uh, I would like to say that's not the case, but that's not always the case, which... Um, is a sad reflection sometimes. We've had people using spreadsheets to do this stuff that they should be using tools for. And that's in 2022, not in 2006. Um, so there is no excuse, but you'd be surprised. Uh, major government regulators and industries that, <laughs> that you would not want to know about, without, and we won't mention names, but it's surprising how a lack of discipline and a lack of good tools still permeates the industry. Well, it in that vein, what are some of the most common problems you're solving for these clients? I mean, the biggest problem I think we're solving is, is it's, it's what we call traceability, which is sort of a technical term. But what it really means is having all the data come together so you cannot miss things. So, for example, I've 
if I'm building a new computer system, say it's for a very important public utility, uh, I need to understand what it's going to do, who's going to use it, what are the risks for deploying it, uh, how do I test it, how do I develop it, uh, what what will go into that. And when I go live, being able to prove and verify that I've met all those criteria. And what happens is that the biggest problem is that people have multiple systems doing this thing, not connected up. Um, like anything else in IT, a lot of systems that don't talk to each other, and so things get dropped between the different groups. I mean, goes live and there's a there's a problem. Uh, the developers would say, "Well, that wasn't in the spec." The testers would say, uh, "Well, I didn't test that because I didn't know I had to." All the developers would say, "You tested it, and I thought I fixed it." And uh, the people who designed the system would say, "Oh, we didn't put that in the spec because we hadn't thought of it." And you know, you can find a number of excuses, but ultimately, when the system goes live and it fails. Uh, those excuses don't carry much kind carry much water or carry much weight. Well, you, you're describing a scenario which is why the term digital transformation is such a buzzword here in 2024. You know, uh, companies have grow and scale through acquisition. Now you've got legacy systems all over the planet, mm-hmm. siloed data, and you got to level the playing field to be able to do what you do. Is digital transformation in in quotation marks necessary before implementing Inflectris platform? Um, that's a really good question. It, it depends a little bit on the client and, and the scale of the deployment. Some of our clients, they have a set of, of problems they're trying to solve in one area. We can solve those without a major transformation. Uh, you know, that would be like a team level department would buy the software, deploy it, uh, and they can do a lot, a lot self-service-wise. Then you have the larger implementation where a client's like, well, not just implementing for one department. We want to roll this out across the company or our quality practices as a company are problematic. We're having consistent problems across our entire organization. In which case, there's no point just putting a tool in. You need to, you need to understand the limitations of the process and transform what you're doing. And sometimes they'll bring in our software in when they're in the middle of a digital transformation and it's having problems. So it can be e- either of the three use cases, really. Either there's it's small deployment and it's okay or we spur a digital transformation, or they're in one and they're having trouble. Um, it a little bit depends on, I think, the scale of, of what the adoption they're looking for and the scale of what they want to use it for. And sometimes they might do a POC with our product in one team, and then that, that will then spur them to make the to generate the you know the KPIs and the ROI to say, look, we did this one team, look how much we saved, look at the quality improvements. Now we want to roll this out company-wide. That's going to require much more investment. But they have then a, a case study they can use, a business case to use to go to senior management. So some of it can spur digital transformation after the fact. What differentiates you in the marketplace? What makes you stand out from your competition? I mean, the, yeah, the special source for us is that traceability, that connection to that data. And we'd like to say that, you know, people choose Inflectra where there can't be a single point of failure, like those examples that I talked about earlier. Uh, we really take that seriously. And many companies have actually looked at how we develop our own software and our, our, our customers are our testers. So if anyone's going to find a problem in your software, it'll be testers. So by having the primary, at least traditional audience being testers, you get to find things out pretty quickly. So uh, people look to us as a role model and, and they and they, they use our, pro- our products when they want to solve that problem and have the, the highest quality. So the reason why they would choose us is we have that that best traceability uh, and the best ability to bring all that data together in one place and do it in a relatively easy to use fashion uh, for, for other clients that don't have the time to you know set this all up themselves. Uh, and I think going forward, one of the things that we're seeing is that the data we have is as important as the functionality. And that's something I don't think we've, we truly appreciated. And that may be something that you know people listening to this, this, this podcast would think, don't just look at your system and the functionality. That's obviously a certain amount of value in what you're bringing. But sometimes it's the data you have. And so we're looking at using generative AI and other 
uh, machine learning and deep learning techniques to take the AI the data story we have today and how do we better use that for clients? Because I think the data we have that ties everything together is as important, if not more important, than the functionality we already have. And and what what size company do you work best with? Is there sort of an entry level size that makes sense to use your platform? I mean, typically we're looking for medium to large companies because we're solving relatively complex mission critical problems. Uh, so it's not going to be a startup building a website. It's going to be either it's going to be a team in, let's say, a large utility or a large healthcare company or a hospital system, or it could be an IT company making an electronic patient record system. Um, so it's going to be either a team in a large company or a medium company or a large company. It's rarely going to be startups or very small companies. The exception I would say to that would be if it's a company that's going to have to go live in a regulated industry, let's say it's a bio startup that's going to have to get FDA approval, or it's a fintech startup that's going to have to go to the OCC and get approval. In those situations, they, even though it might be small today, and maybe they can afford to be less rigorous than a, small, than a big company, they're going to be bigger in three to five years, and they're going to have to face the same quality gates and processes and compliance needs. And so if compliance is going to drive their roadmap in three years' time, then they should probably start using us today. Uh, and that would, I would say, drive the smallest ideal customer. Otherwise, the ideal customers tend to be a bit more medium to large. Makes sense. Let's switch gears a little bit. Let, let's talk about the COVID years. I, you know, I, I tend yeah. to talk about them in past tense, although it finally found me after three years, a few weeks. Oh, ago. no. I'm sorry. Uh, not a lot of fun. Tell me about the, the, the challenges and opportunities of growing a business like yours through COVID. So the challenges were, we'd, uh, it was March of 2020, and we had a, a full travel schedule, a full conference schedule, and all that went by the wayside. Uh, it also meant that we had distributed, we had a team that was mostly not distributed. We were mostly in the DC area, um, and the company was based here. And as when COVID happened, people work from home, and we still have an office here. I'm actually sitting in the office today. Uh, but increasingly, people work from home, and we have like our Thursdays where people come into the office, and we do like events. So we, so we definitely do prioritize when we can have FaceTime. But it also during those two or three years, people moved to other cities. And we also hired people in other countries. And we would have done that maybe before. But it sort of spurred us that once we could do everything remotely, now it didn't matter where people were. And we have about 40% of our business comes from the EMEA region. And we used to try and service that remotely. Well, now using a PEO, a professional employer organization, we actually now hire people directly in Ireland, in France, in, in the UK, um, and other countries in, in Morocco, in the, in the EMEA area. And they work from us, uh, for us. And so we have a global company. And we always had a global customer base, but we didn't really have a global employee base. So really, that was the biggest, I would say, most fundamental change, is it changed our mindset to be, we can have a global company, we don't need to have offices everywhere, we don't need to be limited by the traditional thinking of what it means to be a global company. Uh, and it's given us a lot of flexibility to hire best the best people wherever they are in the US, wherever they are in the world. Um, and also, we did some virtual events, which we also found not to be very successful. So it also gave us, a, I think, a, a good critical understanding of what works best in person, what works best uh, virtually. And then the, I guess the last piece would be, because our software does help people work remotely and manage projects, uh, the software itself helped clients that were going through the similar transformation uh, keep their quality as they went remote. So there was definitely, a, there was a business boost there. There was also economic boost. Some of our clients were in the travel hospitality industries and we did lose some clients or, or some downscaling for a year or two as well. So it was sort of a missed bag. It was definitely challenging running the company. And I remember at times thinking like, am I staring into the abyss? Are we ever going to get a customer again in those early months? Are we ever going to get a renewal? Why do people even need the software if they're not even going to be operating? Um, but after that initial two months, I would say, of staring into the abyss, we managed to find the upside of it. Excellent. Excellent. Hey, you know, 
life is not a linear process, right? It's, um, <laughs> well, that is true. Control is a human illusion. So mm -hmm. uh, if COVID didn't remind anybody of that, I'm not sure what will. But tell me, what role has content played in the growth of Inflectra? Um, we've always been biased towards inbound. So before we, before we get into content, let's talk a little bit about the sales channels because content plays a huge role in that. And that is... In the earliest days, we were 100% e-commerce. So you would go to the website, you would do search advertising, find this, you know, sign up for a trial and buy it. And it was very much a self-service e-commerce-driven business. Uh, we were we were targeting smaller companies in those days, and we were less differentiated by industry. And then, obviously, search advertising gets very competitive. A lot of the big companies discover it. It isn't just the the small challenges that are that are doing this. Uh, so the cost, the differentiation is harder. Uh, and we still, we tried doing an outbound campaign, cold calling and cold emailing. And for a product that's, that's as, I would say, technically sophisticated as ours and the change management and transformation it requires, it's not a good fit because people, when they get a call, we could give the software for free and they're not going to use it because they're not ready to use it. And so that doesn't tie well to a traditional outbound sales system. So what we did is we did outbound marketing that leads to inbound sales sure. and thus content becomes the key for that. And, and, I, and I think the key for us is having a layered approach to content, which is the right content for the right time to keep the person engaged. So what that would typically be in the journey of the company or the, or the customer to the company would be, you know, they first might hear of us through a LinkedIn post. They go to a webinar, they, they go to the webinar, understand something about one of our products or industries or some use case that we're, we're featuring. They like what they see. At that point, they might just stay in touch with us, sign up for our newsletter, get more drip content, or they might sign up for a trial version and do a demo, do a POC, have a discovery call, go through sales. At that point, they could buy, but they may not. Maybe there's no budget. Maybe the team isn't ready. And so what happens is they may go off from sales back into drip. And now we're going to send them more content that's valuable. Because if you've got someone who used to be engaged, but perhaps for whatever reasons they're external to you, like the budget or the, the company's not ready or there's a new CTO coming in, they don't want to be nagged every month by a salesperson saying, when are you going to buy? When are you going to buy? When are you going to buy? That, that's the biggest turnoff. If, on the other hand, every month you're sending them valuable content that, that's useful to them, that's not like sales, you know, uh, clickbait or, you know, BuzzFeed nonsense, but real rich content about their problem. Like, you know, here's a problem you could solve. Here's a use case we found that could be interesting or a case study about how someone did something different. That's kind of content they can consume, they can share it. And then, it, you know, when the time is right, a year from now, a new CTO comes in, budget proves, something happens, they will come back to you and say, ah, I really appreciate all that information you gave me. You know, now we're ready to look at your product again for whatever reason. And I think that's the key. We see the content as a way to stay, staying engaged, both with you know, prospects, customers, partners, and all of the ecosystem that we have. And we may even do exclusive content just for partners which will actually makes them feel special. So that way they're not just simply getting the same content that everyone else is, but there's some unique content that hey, they can access because they're a partner and have committed to us. I swear that I did not give you a script for the last nine <laughs> seconds of comment. Okay. <laughs> but um, you speak our language loud right. and clear. We and content can be video. It can be, uh, we, don't, we don't do much audio, but it could be podcasts uh, or audio podcasts. It could be, uh, you know, YouTube videos. A lot of it can be webinars, written content, blogs, all that kind of stuff. We preach every day. It takes more touches than ever to last a, a, to land a client, and you have to engage and educate through content. Period. It mm -hmm. it is necessary evil in 2024. Let's look to 2025. What are some things you'd, a year from now you'd like to be celebrating personally and professionally? Oh wow, um, that's a that's a hard one. I hadn't thought too much about that uh, going into the call. 
Uh, I mean, so let's start on the personal side. Uh, my 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 son has finished college and has got a job. That's fine. He's doing very well. My daughter's going to be in a, I guess, entering her center towards her senior year in college. So on the personal side, having her feel like she's on a successful trajectory and that's taken care of. Uh, on the personal side, keeping a good work-life balance because as a CEO, that's sometimes hard to do. And I do try that. I do sleep every eight hours every night. And I do try and recommend other people that, you know, how busy things are, make sure you have time for yourself. I'm not always the best exemplar of it, but I try my best. And at the company, we do have a company culture that tries to promote that. So trying to live that is an important personal thing for me. And then on the professional side by 25, I would like to actually see our East Asia part of business grow to a larger percentage of the company. Uh, we do a lot of work in North America and at EMEA. Uh, so I'd like to see more coming out of APAC. That's an area where we're investing some resources and there's a lot of potential there. So that will be a personal success. On the sort of personal slash professional, I do get to enjoy meeting um, customers and partners around the world. Uh, do most of my travels in Europe and North America, a little bit to Australia. So I'd like to get some more personal experience going to maybe Africa and uh, APAC um, outside of Australia, just on the personal side, meeting customers and partners there, places like the Philippines, Indonesia, um, and then potentially Nigeria and Kenya, where we do have customers, actually. Excellent. Excellent. Please tell us, what's your URL? Where can people find Inflexure Corporation? And what social media outlets are you using these days as well? So you can find us on Inflexure.com. Uh, very simple. Uh, we got the domain name. And if you're running a business, make sure you have that and trademark it and all that good legal stuff. Uh, and then in terms of social, honestly, the number one platform, and, and by far ahead of anything else at this day, is, is LinkedIn. Um, you know, we used to use Facebook and, and, and Twitter slash X. But uh, apart from conferences, it was never very big. Even for conferences, it's pretty much gone down a, a political rat hole. So unless you're in politics, it doesn't seem to be valuable anymore. LinkedIn is, is very good still. Uh, Facebook was big for a while, but now it's gone mostly B to C or C to C. So we don't do as much there anymore. And then we, for a while, we're using, we use a little bit of, of what's called Zing. It's a German, Austrian, Swiss version of LinkedIn. They've largely moved over to LinkedIn as well. So LinkedIn seems to have consolidated the B2B social. We don't do much on Instagram uh, or threads. We've tried a little bit of content here and there. Hasn't really done a lot for us. And the other one, I suppose, is YouTube. We do a lot of videos on YouTube, uh, long-form video. But we like to try and do more more other forms of video. So that will be an interesting avenue for us to explore in the years ahead is look at what where's the best platform for video. Uh, we know we want to do more short-form video for people who are trying our product, particularly when they, when they want to use the product and they get stuck at certain points. They're not going to watch a one-hour video. They want like a 10-minute, how do I do this one thing or what's this one thing I'm trying to solve? And I don't know what the best platform right now is for that. So we're still working on finding other outlets beyond the YouTube and LinkedIn. But those are the two that you can find us on that we're the most active on currently. Excellent. Adam Sandman at, at Inflectra Corporation, all the best to you and yours and continued success at Inflectra. Thank you for spending some time with us on Business Ninjas today. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Be well. Hey, are you a business ninja? Want to be interviewed like this? Give us a shout. Go to www.writeforme.io, W-R-I-T-E-F-O-R-M-E.io and schedule a time to meet with us and we'll make it happen. Keep slaying it, y'all.